Amen. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate you leading us in a time of music worship and bringing us to the point where we're ready to to hear the Word of God and respond to it. If you're a guest here today, we're glad that you're here. If you want your children in uh, a Sunday school, graded Sunday school, you can be dismissed to the foyer right now, and, and they will help you. If you want to keep them with you, please do that. Uh, we're a family church and glad of it. If for the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. God's plan for a healthy church. Uh, study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians now 10. We've been in this particular study, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, for several years now. Spiritual warfare is our topic, and it really is the topic of, as we begin uh, 2 Corinthians, starting in 10, all the way through the end of the chapter. It's great to be back together in our corporate time in the Word. It's a topsy-turvy world we're in, and so I appreciate you being flexible, if you would. Look at verse 12, is where we're going to pick up in chapter 10. We've been working our way through, and if you, this is your first time, you're thinking, I don't know where they are, don't worry, you will, and anytime the Word of God is just opened up and read through and expounded, you will be blessed, and you'll know what He wants you to know, so be encouraged. If you uh, like, grab a Bible around you, I'll be in the New American Standard, or you can just read the one that you study and memorize each week, and I will uh, give you verse cues. And I hope it wasn't, isn't, isn't your first time that you've been in the Word this week. The Lord wants you to be in the Word each day. It is our encouragement continually for you to do that. Find a Bible reading, reading uh, calendar that can take you through cover to cover each year. It'll be your blessing. It'll help you to know more cumulatively what the Word of God says about things. It'll help you manage uh, those things that come up in the world, know what you ought to think about it, because the Lord doesn't change, and many of those situations have been repeated over and over. And so let me encourage you to be in the Word each day. Verse 12 of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding, verse 13. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, verse 15. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be, within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, verse 16, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another, verse 17. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for, verse 18, it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. We're coming to the end, of course, of this chapter, particularly this section, which began in verse 7. And, and here we've seen that the church of Corinth has been caught in a conflict. They are in the process of trying to determine who was the true and faithful and trustworthy messenger of Christ. Was it Paul or was it teachers who had come lately to Corinth? Teachers with high opinions of themselves and their ability and very low opinions of the Apostle Paul. As I've told you before, it is a difficult, more difficult passage to teach through, to connect to uh, your life. So we've broken it down so that you can see how these can be very practical principles to help you identify true teachers in your life. There's many, many inputs around the world that come in through different uh, ways, and you can evaluate that. And, and Paul had planted this church and, and had been responsible for many, if not, all, if not most, of the conversions here. In early on in the church, he discipled many of them. He'd provided doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction uh, to the church. As a result, they had grown spiritually and mature, in maturity and in sanctification. And, and if you think about that alone, those proofs alone, the differentiation could have been made between the, 
ones who've come lately and the marks here of Paul's apostleship. But as we've seen in this section, some in the church had been won over by the false teachers, believing they were in fact true teachers. So unfortunately, Paul is having to defend his qualifications and his leadership. And we reviewed them fairly well last time, uh, beginning from verse 7. So I won't do that again, just to point you on to uh, the Berean uh, Together in the Word Spotify uh, podcast. You can catch up on that or on YouTube. You can find it there too. And just look at what we've talked about. I think it'll be beneficial to you if you've mentioned it. But I'd just like to say that as um, from the practical side of Paul identifying the qualifications, uh, reminding them that they can trust the things that he teaches are from the Word of God and thereby singularly true, which dismisses anything else that they may hear. All that has a practical application for today because it helps us to qualify what we hear from teachers in the church today. And it gives us a measuring rod to use as a standard for identifying a faithful teacher and faithful ministry. And so we've labeled this whole section marking true or false, which is to say marking true or false teachers, and you can see that as we go through. Now, when we arrived at verse 12, we marked a little change in the Apostle Paul and his approach. Verse 12, look there if you would in your copy of God's Word. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without, he says, understanding. We know that one of the criticisms leveled at Paul was being able to write boldly from a distance. As long as you gave him some space, he was bold, and it was far away, he got brave, but when he came up close, not so much. And and measured against the false apostle standard, he really lacked the real authority and the physical attraction, and coupled with a lack of charisma and personal appeal, it it really caused him to fall short of the standard they had established. And it is precisely this standard that they have come up with that is Paul's target now. He says, I'm not going to measure my qualifications by your standards. Why? He says, well, first of all, he says, with some, we're not bold or class ourselves or compare ourselves with some, he says, of those who commend themselves. So because Paul says that's the mark of a false teacher, self-promoting, self-commending, self-exaltation, that's usually the marks of false teachers around the world. It was the mark certainly in Corinth and still is today. Here's how they do it, he says. They measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. And when they do that, he says, they are without understanding. So, in other words, they invented a standard, they meet the standard they invented, and then proclaim themselves superior. This basically sums up how Paul sums up their ministry. And their standard was persona, and we looked at all of this. It's very common. It's always the same. It's always presence. It's charm. It's still the same today. Personality, influence, uh, their appearance, uh, uh, you know, very cool stage, cool lighting, cool feeling, you know, impressive speech, catchy phrases, spiritual experiences, signs, powers, monetary success, all those kinds of things that false teachers use to impress and to impress one another. Uh, That's the standard that they had invented. It's still the standard now. They are, he says, when they invent that standard without understanding. And so uh, this was Mark II, false teachers, they can't evaluate correctly uh, what they see, their perception of what's important is skewed. Now, there's an objective norm by which uh, every teacher can be evaluated. We've looked at that over and over again, but they don't use that objective norm from the Word of God, and it shows just how completely foolish they are. Paul's evaluation, then, for, of this for the church, only a fool would measure himself against the self-created standard and then declare himself superior to everyone else. Paul had many credentials that, were, that we've looked over over and over again. Remember in 1 Corinthians 2, when he came, he said, I determined to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in meekness and in fear and in much trembling. So that's how Paul began when he began to introduce himself to the church. This is what he said about himself. His standard was objective. And it was really based on what Jesus said would be the lot of those who followed him. False teachers typically, though, don't list expressions of weakness and suffering and persecution and imprisonment in their bio or on their credentials list. Now look at verse 13. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Paul was humble. And that's an interesting term, and I think the church misinterprets it sometimes. Humble has to be you never say anything, you never talk about anything, you never do anything hard, and you always just feel like you're below everybody and just get walked on by everyone, then that's humbleness. But we see humble, uh, humility defined pretty clearly for us here, and that was the sixth mark of a faithful teacher, Paul's humble. And, and he says, I'm not going to boast beyond my measure like false teachers do, but we can tell that he was humble, and we can pick up some of the trademarks of that humility. Number one, Paul is content to be the man God created him to be. He didn't have to be recognized by anybody. He, in fact, he, he did most of his ministry in obscurity and, and was despised by many, and, and his own apostleship was questioned many times. He refused to engage in self-promotion or self-glory. In fact, he gives no consideration to it whatsoever. He just points out the work that he's done in the area assigned to him by the Lord, and that's proof that he's faithful. He knew that the true man of God, and this is the most important one. We lived with this last time. He, he knew that the true man of God knows the standard is Jesus, and he knows he never meets it. That puts him in the right category, doesn't it? That's what humility means. I mean, you, as you're ministering, you realize the standard's Jesus. You're never going to meet it. And that puts you where you need to be. So he always knows he's inferior. And that's what we're talking about when we say he's humble. To get into a discussion about who's greatest uh, is pointless because he sees himself as a chief of sinners. He's humble. And to put it in his own words, in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider market anything as coming from ourselves no matter what i did no matter what good things happened at the church no matter how you were impacted i don't consider there there's anything coming from me personally in the flesh our adequacy is he says from god who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant he made us adequate and anything that happens is because the lord has worked in us as he's talking to timothy uh, his son in the faith and a pastor at ephesus he says this it's a true trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance mark this timothy he says that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners and here's paul's evaluation of himself among high uh, among whom i am what i am foremost of all and then mark what he says in verse 16 he's yet yet for this reason i found mercy so that in me as the foremost what sinner jesus christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, I was so bad that anyone who comes after me can be encouraged because if he saved me, he can save you. That's the whole point. If he worked through me in faithfulness and in mercy, he can work through you because I was foremost. So that's Paul's evaluation of himself. Paul demonstrated humility in this eagerness to give God all credit for everything that's excellent and beneficial in his life. And beloved, that's just as a footnote, that's what leads to true worship. You know, in the modern church today, we're so keen on coming into an, an atmosphere of worship. I'm not really sure what that is. I think that they evaluate that as dark lights and bright lights on the stage and lots of great music and really trendy everything and everything is really cool and we can really join in. We feel like we're worshiping. Can I, 
can I propose this to you? That true worship is not going to happen regardless of where you are. If you haven't established in your own life that all credit for everything that's excellent and beneficial, go to him. It's impossible to worship, and it's not based on the form of music at all, but on the heart attitude of the one who wants to worship, because that's called worshiping in spirit and in truth. And it's a constant theme in Paul's life that he was far from what he should be, and that kept him from boasting or bragging or or trying to promote himself, and it brought him into true worship, which is where we want to be too. The humility that Paul embraced allowed him to admit not conceal his own shortcomings. In fact, if you get to the end of this chap, uh, chapter 13, what does Paul say? That, that he asked the Lord to take away the difficulties in his life, and the Lord said no, and he said, for my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is perfected in your... Yeah, so he, he didn't have to hide his shortcomings. He wasn't like trying to gloss over everything to make sure he had a really good bio and people would think he was great. They knew he wasn't great. He didn't admit to be great. He just said, whatever is good that's coming from me is coming as a result of the Lord's mercy in me. See? And that just helps him to avoid all the hypocrisy that gave him a heart and gave him a heart for church and a willingness and an eagerness to serve the church. And, and those things, beloved, those things not only sum up where Paul was, it, it really sums up what the Bible says about humility. We're not adequate in ourselves to consider anything that's coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. To have no confidence in the right. And this was the mark that Paul was a true messenger of Jesus for the church. And it will be the true mark of a man of God in the modern church. And patently absent from a false teacher, the opposite being true in a great measure. Now look at verse 14 and and follow up and see a a few more marks of his humility, which we saw is itself a mark of a true and faithful minister verse 14 says for we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of christ paul says we're not overextending ourselves we're not making claims to things that did not happen as if we did not reach to you and and that was our fifth understanding of what humility looks like he's not only not going to boast about things he didn't do paul's humility is telling him that he's unwilling to take credit for others labors as well you know, when Paul, Paul says, you know, when I say God used me in Corinth, I'm not telling a lie. That's just boasting that God is great because I've already told you who, how I evaluate myself. When I say God called me to Corinth, I'm not overstating the case. He did. He did call me there, and he did use me there. And then he says at the end of the verse, we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. False teachers always have to accumulate credentials, see, so, so they take credit for things they haven't done. Apparently, what these false teachers had done was come into court. So even you know, when they're writing their book or whatever, they're taking credit for what's going on in the church as if somehow that's them and their, their, their cool little new uh, process to get the church to grow, and that's how they did it. See, it's, the whole thing is, is upside down. And apparently when Paul's talking about these false teachers, uh, what they'd done, they'd come into Corinth and, and he'd given some litany of achievement, which in fact they had not done. That's why Paul says that, that what he says. And, and that's apparently how he qualifies it in verse 15. Look there if you would. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors. Apparently they were not hesitant to take credit for things they had never achieved. And then they come to the Corinthian church and no doubt are laying a claim to spiritual progress going on in that church too. So, which, of course, they'd made no contribution to. We know that how that all went down, right? We know uh, Paul came and that he, 
He started the church in the synagogue and led the synagogue leader to faith and then got kicked out of the synagogue and moved next door and then continued to build the church and, and endure all the hardship that he had to endure. And he was scared and, and the Lord had to come to him in a vision and say, don't worry, I've got many men in the city and no one's going to harm you and just keep working and all that stuff. And so he did all that. He had all the struggles that he had to endure. And then he had to visit himself because the church was being drawn away. And then he had to send Titus. And, and so these other guys are not the instruments of change God had used and probably not even believers in the true sense, as you think about false teachers and you think about what they say and you hear the words, but you realize it seems to be absent of a real relationship to Christ. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.10, he said, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. And even back there, he, he's warning the church that these new guys weren't building correctly. And, and that's, beloved, typically how it goes. That's how churches are ruined. That's how Christian schools and seminaries are ruined. Literally, all across America, churches, Christian schools, seminaries, started with this tremendous conviction and a passion for Christ and a commitment to godliness and, and, a great, and the Great Commission and, and the, the, the infallibility and authority of the Word of God. And they've been literally taken over by the infiltration of these kinds of people Paul is talking about here. And you have to look hard after a small amount of time to find godliness anywhere, even in the seminary. You have to look hard to find people who actually have a biblical worldview and when they teach the Bible, actually act like they've read the Bible and understand what it says. But these people, they've been led in in these places in the name of academia or diversity or ecumenicism or whatever, and they're they're not building with the right things, but they look around at everything that's already there, and it looks great, and they take credit for some of that, and, and then they just wreck what God wants to build, see? That's the usual pattern. That's precisely what's going on in Corinth, and that's the usual pattern for every type of ministry, if you're not careful. And this danger is still happening, of course, still visible around us today. We don't have to look very far. Paul's not going to boast about things he didn't do, and he's unwilling to take credit for others' labors. He just knows what he's done and the commitment that he had to the vision the Lord had given him. And then this last part of verse 15, look there if you would, but with the hope that as your faith grows, he says, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. So Paul's faithful, Paul's humble, he could handle the limits the Lord had put on his ministry. He was going to really labor in obscurity. His greatest, his greatest ministry occurred after his death, later in the church, right, with the benefit of all these, all these uh, epistles. And this is important for us to remember, beloved, because, you know, if even back then the church had trouble, and if it didn't, we wouldn't have had all these epistles written by the Apostle Paul to help correct it. Well, it hasn't changed that much, and so it's still just as relevant today as it was then. Paul's faithful, he's humble, he could handle the limits, he didn't need to be bigger than God intended him to be, he didn't have to compare himself to anyone, God had, had given him a specific call, a commission to fulfill, and he was content to be there and to do that. He was called to preach the gospel to a Gentile world, unreached regions where he, he was to found churches and build leaders, and that's exactly what he did. He had to deal with paganism and threats on his life and haughty, self-absorbed pseudo-apostles who wanted to move in and try to prove that Paul was substandard and wreck the things that God had started. And Paul was completely content to do the things God had put before him. In fact, he was overwhelmed with the privilege because he felt like he wasn't worthy, and he never measured up to the standard anyway. So he's going to minister in relative obscurity in comparison to these false teachers and even in comparison to the other apostles and always having to make a defense of his own apostleship and he's perfectly content with that. But he says, 
with the hope that as your faith grows, and, and you can see Paul's heart here again, as we've seen all the way through this second uh, Corinthians. There's always that hope with Paul, and this is the seventh mark of a faithful teacher, and here it is. It's an undiminished hope to see the church grow in depth. It, it never fades. It's a desire, no matter how much difficulty he's, putting, he's having to go through, how, how much hardship, how many people cause trouble for him, no matter what the setback is, there's an undiminished hope to see the church grow in depth, okay? which is the commitment to keep saying the same things that need to be said and doing the hard, repetitive work of the ministry to make sure that people grow. That's what that looks like, beloved, over the long haul. And false teachers typically don't do that. They aren't willing to stay for the long haul. After a couple years, if things are not going like they think it's going to go, they're out. And that's reflected all over our, our nation and how long people stay in the pulpit. They're not willing to stay and endure difficult people. They're not willing to stay and, and relentlessly force the church to conform to the biblical model. As soon as too much pressure is on them, they're gone. See? They want to see breadth, and they want to see it fast, even if it's a mile wide and an inch deep. And in the middle of this mark of a faithful teacher, we see another indication that Paul is humble. He's humble enough, and here it is. It just kind of segues backwards into that. He's humble enough to stick around and take the abuse and repeat what he's taught before and hold out hope for growth. That's what keeps faithful guys going all around the world, just faithfully giving it over and over again. Humble guys going, the hope of a growing faith, the hope that people will grow in depth. See, Just stick with it and keep doing it. They were definitely struggling, as church was, with negative influences of false teachers around them. Difficult times for Paul, no doubt, and we've read um, a number of those things. We already know the history here because we've gone through it. They're listening to the wrong voices, but the hope of Paul is always that they would grow in faith, get mature, overcome the current issue. In fact, that's his word for the church in Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring in verse, chapter 4, verse 14. The faithful, humble minister always holds out optimism and works to that end. Verse 14 says, and he's talking to the people under the care of the elder of the, of the pastor, that they're no longer to be children, he says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now, if you talk to the average church member, they would say they're not children. They, they would evaluate themselves as being mature believers. However, if inside the church you constantly are tossed to and from by every wave that comes along you're knocked off course and knocked off task and knocked off your ministry because something you hear or somebody something said or whatever and and every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men and craftiness by deceitful scheming if that derails you on a regular basis then your evaluation of yourself as a mature believer is incorrect you would fall into the category of being a child okay paul says though faithfully continue keeping on you want to see you have this undiminished hope to see the church grow in depth but speaking so he says the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even christ and beloved that does not happen overnight and some churches have difficult things going on and they have uh, undercurrents that stay for a long time and you have to deal with those over and over again but that's still what faithful people do see paul said when he taught it's going to be speaking the truth in love. When Timothy taught, it's going to be growing up in all aspects into him who's the head, even Christ. So he's always hopeful they're going to get back to sound doctrine, which leads to holy living and daily walk becomes stronger and less inclined to be tossed by every wave of doctrine and knocked off course and knocked off ministry and knocked off giving and knocked off all the stuff that happens when people are disillusioned somehow. But that has less, it says less about the church and more about the individual. 
And when that happens, Paul says at the end of verse 15, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. What's he mean by that? Well, once you're strong, once you've come back to where you need to be, then I'm going to go even beyond you. Paul says there's more to do within the field, within the sphere that God has given me and given to us. And that's the eighth mark of a faithful teacher, you know, a faithful minister, a faithful ministry, reminding the church that there's still a great commission that we want to fulfill. Uh, sometimes you have to be self-care. Sometimes there's stuff that has to go on. Sometimes hard things have to happen. Sometimes discipline has to go on. Sometimes things, you have to readdress things that are in undercurrents constantly. But once you get past those things and people are not flopping back and forth between all these kinds of things and knocked off course, there's this idea that there's more to be doing. And he clarifies his meaning. Look at verse 16, if you would. So as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. So he's saying, when he says, we will within our sphere enlarged even more by you, we hope as your faith grows, that's what's going to happen. And so as when that happens, to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. He's saying, as your faith grows, we can move beyond right here. And Paul always had plans for that. How can we get the gospel to more people? He, he led by example. He was led by the work of the gospel, and he wasn't through. And that's what he's saying to them right now. He didn't know what plans God had for his future. He just knew what his job was. And every believer should also know that. But, but people get caught up in temporary hardship, and they get caught up in the cares of the world, and they get caught up in drama and disunity and gossip, as was the case in Corinth, and, and, and busyness of schedules and, and whatever. And Paul just says, let's go past these things and keep moving into the work of the Great Commission. And again, he didn't know, again, what plans God has for a future. We can see that now and know where God took him and what ended up happening. But remember Paul in Romans 16. Paul is eager to bring the gospel to Rome. At the end of the book of Romans, he lists dozens of people and dozens of churches where he gave out the gospel, and he says he wants to bring the gospel to Spain. And he was always thinking about how far God would let him go in the sphere God had apportioned uh, to him running in his own lane. And it's a good reminder, I think, for you. Are you thinking about, as you think about the lane, the sphere God has given you, are you thinking about your family and your friends and your coworkers and your acquaintances that God's put in your path? Do you have a plan to move on to them? Is that on your radar? How about, do you have plans to present the gospel uh, in whatever sphere you're in, whatever your work is, whatever your career, the, the acquaintances you bump into, whatever avenue that God's placed you in? Are you content with being faithful? And do you have a plan to move on from there? See? And I think that speaks to everybody. And you, again, you don't know how long God's going to give you, do you? And in the ministry God has given you here, are, are you duplicating yourself so others can do what God has planned for them? See? Because that Paul was always about that taking the things he'd learned and giving to faithful men who were faithful to teach others also. Paul was always about duplicating himself. He's always about a further plan. How far down the line in the sphere God's given me will I be able to impact people? And, and there's some names popping up in your mind, and there should be, that you haven't even thought about. Your neighbors, you know, co-workers, whatever. These people are in your sphere. Have you got a plan to move on to that? Or are you just kind of wrapped up in what the world has to say? Because Paul's in his lane, he's in his sphere, and he has a missionary strategy. Go into a city, plant a church, raise up leaders. And then, of course, come the difficult times and difficult people and the assaults by the evil one, and, and some are taken captive temporarily to do his will, and, and false teachers and all of those tests, and you have to battle against all that. But as you can see, if you're an elder, that, that's part of the territory, and we should already expect that. 
But God may have not given you that ministry. You're not going into churches and plant, going into cities and planting churches and raising up leaders, but you have a sphere that you should be impacting. In fact, we have time, so I want you to do this if you would. Turn to, um, turn to Romans 16. And I was just going to do it if we had time when we do. So Romans 16. And we've studied this in the past. If you've been with us a long time, uh, you know uh, some of this because you were here with us, but many of you were not. And uh, I think this is important, and I'm just going to comment on it briefly. What I'd like you to notice are the different people and places he mentions where he gave the gospel and things happened. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. You'll get the sense of it right away, and I'll just read enough, and we'll have some comments at the end. And uh, verse 1, he says, But I commend to you our sister Phoebe, see where we are, chapter 16, verse 1, who is a servant of the church which is at Chentria. So here's Phoebe. She's a servant somehow, a deaconess perhaps in the church at Chentria. And she's coming home and says, you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. So in other words, the hospitality that should be part of how saints treat each other. And that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. He doesn't even know what she's doing. She's just traveling there. He's given them a, a task. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. So, so here's someone Paul impacted for the gospel, uh, no doubt discipled in his teaching, and has gone out and is doing other things. And then verse 3 says, Greet Prisca and Aquila. These are people we know. They were in Corinth when Paul was there. Uh, and my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who, verse 4, for my life risked their own necks. Now, we don't, have any, we don't have any record of that, but we understand that they stepped in Paul's place and were a shield for him. Uh, so we have it, the record here, to, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. In other words, because they stepped in my place, I was able to continue to minister to the churches that had been planted. And so they're grateful, and they're grateful not only just for my ministry, but because these two did what they did. And so they're going on, and they're uh, doing other ministry, because look at verse 5, also greet the church that's in their house. So Paul duplicated himself, and now they're out doing the same thing. Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who's the first convert of Christ from Asia. Here's another one Paul bumped into and came to faith because he was doing what he was supposed to do in his own lane. Verse 6, greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and fellow uh, prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. These are people Paul impacted but had come to Christ beforehand and now he's telling them to greet them. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Typhena and Typhosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. And, and I'm not going to read it all because it's just a lot of names. And when we went through the passage, I gave you some of those names that are in history and that we can find that we found their, their graves or we, they've other writings about them. We understood what they did for the church. But if you read through the end, you're going to read dozens and dozens of names. And these are all people that Paul, in his sphere, in his lane, are bumping into. And he's making sure he's doing the number one thing, which is what? How's it going? How's life treating you? What's up? No. He's making sure that he's giving them the gospel. And, and if you think about all of that, and you think about the average believer, tell me this, beloved, as you think about this in the privacy of your own heart, if you had to write a letter or you had a letter written about you that's going to list the people you've influenced for the gospel of Christ, how many would be in that list? And that's a legitimate question to ask because you don't know how long you have, do you? And you have one mission. So my question is, how many would that be? Would it be more than just a couple of people that you actually gave the gospel to and you discipled and you saw follow in faith? 
Or are you too wrapped up in what's going on in the world, right? You know, I, I think the average believer, this is what could be written. Well, they were kind of faithful to go to church at least once a week. They didn't ever read through their Bible, but it was on their bucket list. They tried to get involved doing something at the church, but it was hard, and it really wasn't my thing, and so I wasn't really stable. And besides, stuff was going on in the church just kind of made me not want to do it anymore. And the coronavirus, 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 you know, ad infinitum. I, I didn't ever give the, they never gave the gospel to their neighbor because, you know, he always parks in my grass and plays loud music, and it's annoying. So I never really gave him the gospel because I've already been unkind to him. And we can go on and on. And it's embarrassing, okay? That's embarrassing. And that's why the church isn't powerful, beloved. Because we've forgotten what we were here for. We've wrapped ourselves up in the things of the world. And we think that's the most important thing. And so if there was a letter written about the people we impacted, it would be very few people and more of that other stuff that I just got talking about, done talking about. But not Paul. He's in his lane, and he's in his fear, and he had a missionary strategy, go into a city, plant a church, raise up leaders. And he, he could remember the times he spent with people and leading to the faith and making disciples, and he mentions tons of them. And that's not an exhaustive list. How about you? Do you have a strategy? Or are you just taking credit for things you're not doing? You're at Berean, and that's what we're doing, so you're doing it kind of, but not really. Some people here are doing it, right? And that's a serious admonition for everybody. Okay, this is, as I read and studied this through again this week, it's where the Lord was really taking me personally. So you just get the byproduct of my own study. So Paul has a plan to be obedient to the Lord in, in his sphere. In 2 Corinthians 10, 16, he says, so as to preach the gospel even to regions beyond you and not to boast in what's been accomplished in the sphere of another. He runs in the lane that God's appointed to him. It's not somebody else's lane. It's not someone else's sphere. It's not somebody else's field. God's not asking you to do what I do. He's asking you to do what you do, see? And in the place that he's given you to do it and in the education he's allowed you to have and in the influence that he's allowed you to have in whatever place you are, you're bumping into people on a regular basis and those are your mission field, beloved, and I think it's important to note, if you think about this, there remains in the world today both geographical areas where we're sending Eli and Jess and segments within most cultures where Christ is not known. Did you know you bump into people every day and they've never heard the name of Christ? Did you know that? When I was younger, that wasn't so much the case. For the most part, people had a general idea about church. They had a general idea about the Bible. But I bump into tons of people now, younger people, millennials and a little older, and they have never been in church, and they don't know anything about the Bible or about Christianity other than what CNN will tell them as they watch the broadcast. That's the extent of what they know. That's who you're, you're rubbing shoulders with people like that. And so there's geographical areas, there's there's segments in the culture where Christ is not known, you may have people around you without any gospel witness. You may have people around you in your neighborhood that have no gospel witness. No one in their family knows Christ, period. And they're not tuning in to a Christian radio station to find out about the gospel, okay? And as I told you before, people across Greenview are not thinking, I wonder what's going on in the church today if they're un if not born again. I, I think I'm going to go over there. They're not thinking that. They're hoping it doesn't rain and they can go fish, okay? Or have a picnic or, or whatever. You're rubbing shoulders with people like this all the time. Just like the pagan societies Paul was in. And so there are people without a gospel witness. There are men and women who share, and in the church, share Paul's mission to preach the gospel where Christ has not already been named. 
and they're still needed. You're needed. And beloved, when you do that, the upside is God doesn't expect you to operate in someone else's sphere. Just yours. Just yours. Wherever you are, if you're a student, if you're a professional person, wherever it is, just yours. And look at verse 17. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. And this backs back into, of course, the, how we saw how humble Paul was, but it's also the mark of a faithful teacher, a faithful ministry, a demonstrated desire to seek only the Lord's glory. You know, the thought of self-glory is abhorrent to Paul. Paul just wanted to get glory for whatever good happens as a result of the ministry and give that all to the Lord. That's all the Lord's. A very consistent theme with the Apostle Paul. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, he says this as he talks about the people who come to faith, not many wise, not many um, powerful, not many noble. So it puts us in the category where we don't get to boast that, you know, hey, we're, we're the elite. God has chosen, he, did, he does this. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He's talking about believers. God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised of God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus who became for, to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it's written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. He picked you, he saved you. Three most important things in the world Jesus has accomplished for you, imputed righteousness to you, positional and practical holiness, and a secure future. You've already got those things. You received them from the Lord, not because you were worthy or what you brought to the table, but really because you were unworthy and really not part of the wise, not part of the noble, not part of the powerful, see? And that should change what you think is important when you're thinking about yourself, okay? No matter where you are. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 never can you read a passage in Scripture that is such an antithesis to the average church as this one. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through market which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Have you ever heard a more opposite thing than what people actually think? They're trying to figure out their place in the world, how they can have recognition from the world, the best place to line up so the world gives them what they want. They're not trying to figure out how they can be less recognized by the world and more glory going to God, see? For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Do you want to have peace and mercy in your life, beloved? then forget about who you think you are in the world and start focusing on making everything you do about reflecting God's glory and focusing the attention on Him. In whatever you do, and however the Lord has placed you in your sphere, just do faithfulness in your lane. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Paul says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Even the mundane things, all the different aspects of life, all the tasks, the significant tasks, the mundane tasks, whatever they are, do for the glory of God. And what does that mean? When you're doing it for the glory of God, that means you've realized that you are unworthy, even the least of God's mercies, and that everything that you, is good about you is something Christ has put in you. Then you can do everything for the glory of God, can't you? That's a consistent theme and a focus of the wise all throughout the Word of God. In Psalm chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 7, it says... Um, 
I got four up there. Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. So some who are powerful and some who are war making, they boast in chariots, they boast in horses. We're not going to do that. We may be good at being a soldier, but we're not going to boast in the things that we have. We're going to boast in the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, of course, this is on my mind because I told you I'm reading through Jeremiah now in my personal reading. But Jeremiah 9, 23, thus saith the Lord. And this is a passage that I learned and memorized with my sons as they were growing up because it has to do with men. And if you've got boys and they're young, you should be memorizing passages that deal with men. And so we did this often, and there's lots of them. I've given you some of them already. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and he knows me, that I'm the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Beloved, there's nothing wrong with being wise, and there's nothing wrong with being mighty, and there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Just don't boast in any of those things. Only boast that you know the Lord and you know about the Lord and you know what he expects from you and you do it. That's what you boast in. The other things are gifts from the Lord that come at his pleasure. But they are not the sum of your life. Don't try to find your place in the world. The world's crucified to you. You'll have to work in it. You'll have to, have, uh, you have to take care of your family. I get that. But that's not where your, your, your recognition comes from. And all those passages really point us back to the demonstration of Paul's humility. That's what it really looks like. That's what humility looks like. It always includes the conviction that you are utterly and completely unworthy of the goodness, mercy, and grace of God and incapable of anything of value apart from that. And praise the Lord, he's given you all of the things you need by his grace and his mercy. Isn't that marvelous? You're not worthy of the least of it. I'm not worthy of the least of it. And yet he gives it in abundance on a faucet. We, st we stand in grace. And that attitude leads us right to the glory of God. Because Paul says in verse 18, look at this last verse. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willingness is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. You know, this is the Apostle Paul. I know nothing good dwells in me. Do you know that? That's, that's, the, that's the reality of our life. Sadly, the antithesis to this attitude is the attitude of false teachers. Always seeking their own glory, always seeking their own self-promotion, their own fame. And, and when that's going on, you know you're following the wrong guy. He's part of the mutual aberration club, and that's not what you want. Okay. And then this last verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 10, 18. That's our last illustration for the most part. For it is not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Let he who boasts boast in the Lord, for it's not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends. If you're boasting in the Lord and what he's accomplished in you, you don't have to commend yourself. You don't have to draw attention to yourself. You can work in relative obscurity, really. There's lots of guys doing that. You know, I, I know this. I know here at Berean and other places... There's lots of guys that are under the radar. They're doing precisely that. They're faithful in their walk. They're raising their families, bringing their kids up under them in discipline, loving their wives in a self-sacrificing manner, and in the, in the workplace and, and in the around in their acquaintances, they're faithfully doing what they're supposed to do in their own lane. I get it. I'm not speaking to everybody, okay, when I talk about these things and how embarrassing perhaps it is if you don't have a life that could mark anybody you've really influenced for Christ. Because you haven't crucified the world to yourself. You've seen how close you can get to the world. Paul says, 
It's not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends. And the verse Paul's eyes are upon the ultimate evaluation of a person's ministry. And that's Mark 10 of a faithful teacher, a faithful ministry. He aligns his life, mark it, he aligns his life so that he will be found approved by the Lord. That's just the question you ask on a regular basis, beloved, as you think about what you're doing. Align your life in such a way that it'll be found approved by the Lord. And that's not a secret what that's going to look like, right? Because it matters very little what individuals say by way of self-recommendation and what judgments others make. And this, of course, looking back on those who compare themselves with themselves in this very passage. All that matters is the commendation which the Lord himself will give. And all that reminds us, and that just reminds us of Paul's substantial commitment about all of this early in 1 Corinthians. And we looked at this at length, but in 1 Corinthians 4, he says this. He says, let a man regard us in this manner. So if you're going to look at me, look at me like this. As a servant as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. If you're going to evaluate me, evaluate me on that. How am I doing as a servant, a table waiter? How am I doing as an under rower as it relates to the mysteries of God? How am I doing with that? As I serve what the Lord prepares in the kitchen and I put it on the table and I'm not trying to spill any of it, right? And, and we looked at all this. In, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So if you have a stewardship, if you have a responsibility, what are you supposed to be? If you want to be evaluated well by the Lord, then do it well, okay? Don't let everything knock you off course. Don't, you know, everything and its brother comes along and, you, and you're just, you know, not committed. Be faithful. Be trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or any human court, Paul says. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself. And yet, in his humility, he says, yet... I'm not by this acquitted. Just because I don't know if I've done anything wrong doesn't mean I haven't done anything wrong. But the one who examines me is the Lord. This is the one I'm most interested in. And it goes back to our point. Align your life so it will be found approved by the Lord. The Lord's the one who's going to examine me, and he's the one I'm interested in pleasing, so I've aligned my life in that way. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. So because you look at people just like, you know, is this going on? What's going on? I'm not, don't pass judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, things you suspect of people, and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man will have praise, and it will come to him from God. Align your life in such a way that you're going to be found approved by the Lord. That's what a faithful teacher does, a faithful ministry does, how you can trust it. This is a rubric that Paul followed as he carried out his ministry. It's not tough to read. And this will be how Paul ends his letter, which we're going to see shortly in 2 Corinthians 13, 7. What's he say? Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. And Mark, it's so remarkable that he says this. We pray to God that you do no wrong. He's praying for the church that they be found faithful and do the right things. But not that we ourselves may appear approved. Not so that you'll say, well, Paul really knew what he was doing. He didn't care about that. He didn't care that somebody said, oh, Paul was a really good minister. Paul really, you know, guided the church well. He prayed that the church do no wrong. But you, you may do what's right even though we may appear unapproved. When it gets to the end, you may take an evaluation of us, unlike, not unlike what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, early before the Lord's evaluation, you're saying, now Paul isn't approved. You may say we're not approved. doesn't matter, as long as you're doing what you're supposed to do. See? That's Paul's heart, isn't it? He doesn't care what he may look like to some people, that it may appear that he doesn't know what he's doing, as long as they do no wrong, as long as they're walking in righteousness. As we wrap up, there's an important word here in 2 Corinthians 10, 18. It says, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved. There is a standard, beloved. 
Okay? There's a standard. You wouldn't know it, and we're going to talk about this less next time. You wouldn't know it um, as you think about all the universities and seminaries and stuff as they've adopted all the ecumenicism and, and, and diversity and all that stuff. Really, what you've done when you've done that, you've just kind of gotten rid of everything that would be considered heresy. It's easy to get rid of heresy if you just want to be inclusive of everybody. You know, and I have, I have sons uh, in, in, in school, and they come back, and they just say, well, the professor said, be careful when you teach this doctor because there's people who don't hold it. Really? Is that a surprise to anyone that people don't hold that doctrine? It's either true or it isn't true, beloved. It's not like it's all true, but that's what happens now, right? We just got rid of all heresy because we don't have to worry about it because we're just inclusive of everyone and everyone's beliefs, which makes the Bible bankrupt of anything secure that we can stand on and say, this is what it says, this is what it means by what it says, and this is how we apply it, see? But we are so conditioned to just accepting everybody's, and that's precisely what Satan wants, right? Because he doesn't care what you believe as long as you don't believe the singular truth that you should be believing. You just believe whatever you want. It doesn't really matter to him. But that's where we are, see? But there's an approval, regardless of what people think. And that's the adjective dokimos. We've, we've looked at it before. The word has to do with testing, found acceptable, passing a test. And I pointed this out before, the word has to do with money. You know that in ancient times they didn't really have a banking system as we would know it now and, and no paper money. Money was made from metal. It was cast in soft metal and then it was pulled out of the casting. It was, had to be smoothed down because it had rough edges as casting often does. And uh, of course, when they're smoothing them down, they're shaving them too close. And when they're shaving them too close, of course, the coin is thinner than it's supposed to be, so it doesn't have the weight it's supposed to have. And, of course, they can make more coins out of the shavings. But in one century, uh, more than 80 laws were passed in Athens to stop the practice of shaving down coins in circulation. Things haven't changed. But, but some money changers were men of integrity. They would accept no counterfeit money. And so you knew whatever they got from, you ever got from them was genuine, full-weighted coins. And they were called dokimos. They were approved. Okay. There was a standard, and they held to it, see, and a faithful teacher aligns his life so he'll be found, approved, that's the word, by the Lord. And, and knowing how to live that way is not a secret. And we've looked at lots of these passages throughout the study from 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5 as he relates to elders. And the main way, though, that it's going to come out, 2 Timothy 2.15. If you're a teacher, you desire to be a teacher, you want to be in the ministry, beloved, listen. Be diligent to present yourself. He tells Timothy, who's a pastor, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be diligent is aorist, active, imperative. So is it optional? Uh, no. Um, spodazzo. It just means to work hard, to be thorough, to be attentive, to be meticulous at what? Mark it. Accurately handling the word of truth. And this really is the opposite of what we see anymore that passes itself off as biblical teaching. If you're a ministry leader and you want to be approved by the Lord, and I say this, I've said this dozens and dozens of times to guys who come through churches who desire to be pastors, this is what I point them to all the time, okay? Do the hard work in handling correctly the Word of God. Keep your rear end in the seat until the work is done. Understand what it means, what it means by what, what it says, what it means by what it says, and how does that apply. Get that down teaching and the preaching and the discipleship and counseling that you do, do the hard work in the Word so that you know what the Word of God says 
what it means by what it says and how that applies. So you can teach that to other people. And as you're, as you're in the ministry, you just, this is your life. You just do that over and over and over and over throughout your ministry, over and over. You don't have to, you don't have to Gussy it up. You don't have to change it. You don't have to make it cool. You don't have to wear cool clothes. You don't have to have a cool stage. You don't have to have any kind of presentation other than what the Word of God says, what it means by what it says, and how does that apply, and then rein your life in so that it conforms to the biblical requirements of an elder, and we know what that is, and although you and I will never measure up to the standard of Jesus, you will be pleasing in the Lord's sight. It's not really that hard. And that evaluation doesn't just apply to elders. So just in case, well, whew, that's good. That doesn't apply to me. Um, 1 Corinthians 3.13. You're going to see our same word. Each man's work, so that's every believer's life work. You. Since you came to faith, every place you've been, everything you've said, all that you've done, and, and how it's added up as whether it built on the foundation of Christ or it was something of your own doing or bad motives or whatever it is you did about legalism. There's all kinds of ways to evaluate it. Every person's work will become evident for the day will show it. What day? If you see judgment day, there's a test and everybody's going to go through it and it's going to be revealed with fire. What's that mean? Well, the fire will, re- will, our word, test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. Gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, stubble. Those are the options. Obviously, we know which ones are flammable and which ones are not. So it's not that hard to figure out, see? But I will say to you this, and we're going to close with this. This has to do with everybody. Of course, we're speaking specifically of teachers and and false teachers and stuff. But listen, at the point of this that we just read, this right here before you on the screen, at that point in your life, you will realize that this evaluation that you're under right now was the only one that ever mattered. That's the only one you're going to know that's the only one that ever mattered. And so my prayer for you is may the sum of your life be found approved. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Just seek the Lord as we close up. Lord, we thank you today for a chance to be in your word. We're grateful to you for uh, how clear it is. We thank you that we can complete another chapter in this marvelous letter and and it's still just as beneficial to us as it was to the church uh, back in the first century. And that shouldn't surprise us because it is your word and it's always relevant and powerful. It accomplishes what you sent it to do. And so, Lord, I know that you've been at work in your word. Uh, you were at work in your word in my own heart. I know you're at work in your word in those who listen and hear. And so, Lord, just accomplish those things. Help us to adjust what we're doing, our track, our sphere our lane that we're in as we're bumping into people. Help us to remember that these things are life and appointments that you've made for us for the ministry of the gospel that we may influence the world with truth that they may come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and be rescued from their sin and from the curse and punishment that follow. So Lord, I pray that each of us will be doing these things and then corporately we won't have to claim somebody else's work, but we'll be doing the work too. And Father, I pray that you will bless our efforts this week as we go out to do these kinds of things. We leave the doorway of the church. We walk into the sphere, the uh, lane that you put us in, our mission field. I pray that we'll, first of all, love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and in a divided and caustic world love our neighbor as ourself we never lack self-love and self-care 
So that just sums up how we can make sure that we're not part of the problem. And then help us also to take the gospel to every creature that they may hear that you bring in our life. And we thank you for the opportunity to do that. And we don't know how long you've given us, but help as we march towards that testing date. And if it hasn't been that great up until now, help it to be stellar from this time on. Whatever wings we're throwing on on the foundation of Christ are made out of the things that last. We pray this in the name of, your father, of, the father, of you, Father, and your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, who's at work uh, in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.